So we are in Mark's Gospel, and the big question of Mark's Gospel is actually the big question of your life, whether you realize it or not. And that is this, who is Jesus? All the way through Mark's Gospel, Mark is presenting Jesus to the readers, to us, right? He's saying, this is who Jesus is, you've got to get this, and he tells us in verse 1 of chapter 1 that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, but everyone in the story doesn't seem to get who Jesus is. Certainly not his family, certainly not the religious experts, and certainly not his disciples. The three groups that should understand who he is seem to be kind of oblivious as you're going through. It's like, what's going on? Why can't they see it? Actually, uh, the first eight chapters are really focused on that. You get to see Jesus doing healings, doing miracles, doing all the stuff that he did. And all the way through, it's like they can't see it. We know it because we've read the start of the book, but they can't seem to see it. C.S. Lewis, the guy who wrote uh, Narnia series back in the day, C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, the claim of Jesus is so strong that it only gives you three options. Either Jesus knew that he wasn't God, but he claimed to be God, and that makes him a liar. Or Jesus didn't know that he wasn't God, but he claimed to be God, and that makes him a lunatic. Or Jesus claimed to be God, and Jesus was God, and that makes him the Lord. What C.S. Lewis was saying was, uh, who Jesus is, is really logically quite a simple thing. It's, It's either he's lying or he's mad or it's true. What is not an option is that we kind of just settle with a halfway kind of answer, right? We can't just say, well, Jesus is a good example. Or Jesus is my guru. Or Jesus is uh, kind of a, a good life coach. Or Jesus was a great teacher. None of those kind of things are an option. We can't say Jesus is my genie in the bottle. And if I pray, he answers my prayers. That whole idea, C.S. Lewis was saying, not possible. He's either Lord or he's not at all. And if he's Lord, that then changes everything. Now, Mark is kind of doing the same thing. Not that he'd read C.S. Lewis, but Mark is kind of doing the same thing because he's presenting Jesus and he wants us to know that you cannot settle for a Jesus that is just there to kind of fix your problems, to to help you out, to answer your prayers, to solve your issues. And so by the time you get to chapter 8, Jesus says to his disciples, okay, who do the people say that I am? And they told him. And then he says, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter responded and said, you are the Christ. And in that moment, the moment that it finally seems to kind of twig, like they've got it. Yes, good answer, Peter. We've been waiting for that since verse 1 of chapter 1. Great. Then immediately Jesus starts talking about his death and about going to Jerusalem and about suffering and about rising from the dead. It's like he's so clear that they cannot have the Christ without the cross. He's not going to let them settle for this kind of genie-in-a-bottle version of Jesus where it's all power but no passion. You've got to have the whole thing. It's the, the message, the mission that he was on was to go to the cross. That was God's plan. That was the intention. Jesus had to go to the cross to pay for sin, to bring humanity back into relationship with God, potentially. Uh, he had to rise from the dead to allow, uh, to give life to people who trusted him. The, the whole package is necessary, and you cannot settle for a half Jesus, or for a Sunday Jesus, or for a when I'm in trouble Jesus. We need to have the whole Jesus. And so we come into chapter 9. 
And I want to read to you a bit of a chunk of text here, chapter 9, and we're going to see two incidents. Okay, I was going to read it straight through without comment, then I'll obviously add a comment afterwards. But we're going to read two incidents back to back that come right after that interchange between Jesus and his disciples. So he's, uh, they've said, you're the Christ. He said, okay, I'm going to the cross. And then we come to chapter 9, and we'll jump in at verse 2. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, uh, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them. And scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when Jesus, sorry, when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can. All things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. 
But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Okay, so we've basically got two scenes. We've got this mountaintop experience, which we're going to think about. And then we've got this healing or deliverance of this boy with the, uh, with the demon kind of gripping his life and controlling him. So two, two sit- settings, right? So Jesus takes Peter and James and John and they go up a mountain. And what happens next is kind of bizarre, isn't it? I mean, you're reading it. Aren't you kind of thinking, never happens to me. Like, what, what is that? Like, suddenly Jesus becomes transfigured. Like, you can't use a word that is defined by what it is. Like, what does that mean? It, it means that his appearance was totally changed. And suddenly, it, it was like, it wasn't like he was the moon reflecting the glory of the sun. It was like he is the glory of the sun. It's just the, the glory is kind of shining out of him. And so try as much as you can to imagine, right? You're on the mountain with Jesus, probably Mount Tabor, could have been Hermon, but it's one of those northern high mountains in Galilee. And they're up there and suddenly Jesus is bright and shiny at a level we, you cannot match. You cannot produce this, right? No CGI. This is like genuine. And Peter, James and John are terrified. What's more, Elijah and Moses are there, and they're chatting with Jesus, which is terrifying. And, and the whole thing is kind of terrifying. And so what does Peter do? He just blurts out something, because that's what Peter tends to do when in doubt, speak out. Right? So Peter just says the first thing that comes into his mind, um, three tents. We could build three tents, and you know we can stay here. Now, it's interesting when you kind of start picking at this story, trying to make sense of it. What is going on? Well, for a start, Jesus has just told them, or they've just come to the realization that Jesus really is the center of everything. Right? They've just had this, you're the Christ moment, and now he's showing them that in fact he really is the center of everything. So you've got Moses and you've got Elijah, two men that in the Old Testament, interestingly, both spent 40 days and 40 nights on a mountain with God uh, with a cloud of glory. So kind of familiar territory for both of them. And here they are talking with Jesus. Moses, the great prophet from the early part of the Bible, who predicted that in the future there would be a prophet like him from among, from among the Israelites and that then people should listen to him. Here was Moses talking to Jesus. And Elijah, who was the kind of great prophet later on, uh, several hundred years later, who kind of launched the whole prophet era of the Old Testament. And again, he's talking to Jesus. In fact, Luke tells us that they were talking to Jesus about what was about to happen. So you've got the whole of kind of Old Testament human history wrapped up in these two men that are talking to Jesus about what Jesus is about to do. And the glory is shining out and the disciples are absolutely terrified. They are seeing reality. And reality is that Jesus is the center of everything. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the plan of God. Jesus is everything that the Old Testament was pointing towards. This is him. The whole of reality, whether we see it or not, is about Jesus, which is why the question, who is Jesus, is your question, whether you're asking it or not. Because how you live in light of that question determines everything about you. Who is Jesus? You see, the transfiguration declared as boldly as you possibly could declare it to Peter, James, and John. He's not lying. 
He makes some big claims, but he's not lying. He's not mad. We're seeing this. We're experiencing this. This is real. He genuinely is the Lord. He really is the center of everything. And so you've got Moses, you've got Elijah talking about kind of maybe what they'd anticipated and now it's happening and we've been looking forward to this day, Jesus, and we're, you know, it's really coming together and you know, the whole conversation is happening right there in front of them and Peter speaks on behalf of the others whether they wanted him to or not and he says, okay, three tenths. It's got to be three tenths. I mean, it's the obvious thing to do, isn't it? If you're on a mountain... And the glory of God is all around and and Moses is there. I mean, what happened? Exodus 24, Moses is on a mountain, 40 days, 40 nights, glory of the Lord, big cloud. What happens? Then they build a tent. Why? So that the glory of the Lord can be contained in the tent and they won't be consumed. I think that's what Peter's thinking. He's thinking, this is amazing, but this is dangerous. This is amazing, but, but this could be the end of us. This is amazing. Let's contain it so that we're not consumed. Like this is, this is maybe a moment where they're looking back and thinking all the glory moments of the Old Testament are happening right in front of us. And we don't want to leave this. We, this is the pinnacle. This is the best it's going to be. But actually they're misunderstanding something. The reality is that God's plan was never to go backwards towards the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets were there to prepare for now. And Jesus is the now. And actually putting them in a tent is not the plan. In fact, as this cloud of, of glory kind of envelops them, there's a voice. And the voice that speaks is God the Father. It doesn't happen often, but when it happens, it matters. And God the Father's voice bellows down. And and what would you expect him to say? I'd expect him to say, Peter, you're a Muppet. Peter, you've misunderstood. Peter, you don't know your theology. Peter, you've blown it. But thankfully, God doesn't do that. Instead, he says two things. He says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Reminiscent of what he'd said through Moses two millennia or millennia and a half before there's coming a prophet and he's the one listen to him and now the father is endorsing Jesus as the center of reality saying listen to him but don't miss the first half of what he says he says this is my beloved son seems like every time the voice comes from heaven he's talking about how much he loves the son And we might think, oh, well, whatever, that's incidental. No, actually, that is the central reality of everything. The central reality of everything that there is, is a relationship between God the Father and God the Son by God the Spirit. The Trinity is right at the core. Everything that exists, everything that has been created, has been created as an overflow of that God loving that God. Father, Son, Spirit, loving one another at the center of everything. There's a relationship. Doesn't that kind of strike a bit of a chord that maybe relationships are so significant, so incredibly full of joy or incredibly full of pain when they go wrong? Doesn't that kind of make sense in light of who God is? And here are the disciples terrified and confronted by the love of God. This is my beloved son. I I don't think, I I know for myself, and probably not for you, I, I don't think I think about this enough. I don't think I live in this reality anywhere near enough. I live as if everything I can see is real. 
I live as if my problems are my bills or my problems are my health or my problems are, you know, my children or whatever. They're not problems. But you know what I mean? The stuff that I can see, I tend to think that that's the real thing. But actually in this moment, Peter, James and John had the curtains pulled back and they got a glimpse of what's really real. What's ultimately real. What's central to everything. And it's the love of the Father for the Son. And there they were, wrapped in that loving glory of God. You know, it it struck me as I was preparing this, and this wasn't deliberate because we're five years into the church. We've never preached on the transfiguration. But it kind of fits the vision of this church. For all to be transformed by the glorious love of the Trinity. Like, this is the moment, right? Here they were on the mountain, and they were wrapped up in the glorious love of the Trinity. Absolutely amazing. And it was Jesus' plan for them to experience that, and then for them to communicate that. As they're coming down from the mountain, he says, I don't want you to tell anyone about this. Keep it quiet until I'm raised from the dead. And then they have a discussion about raised from the dead. What does that mean? And, And back to normal with the disciples. But... But why did he delay the message? Well, he delayed it because they needed to see the cross and the resurrection, I think, to make sense of the transfiguration. We'll come to that in a second. But the other reason he delays it is not so that they keep it a secret forever, but so that they eventually communicate it. Which means that that event, as obscure as it seems, is for us. He wants us to have the eyewitness, ear witness certainty of the apostles able to say, you know what, we know for certain. We heard it with our own ears. We saw it with our own eyes. In fact, Peter, probably 35 years later, when he writes 2 Peter, he talks about this incident. He says, we were there on the sacred mountain and we heard the voice of God. This left a mark on him. And it was intended to make a mark for us. Now I wonder, as time moved forward for Peter, James and John, as they carried on with Jesus and the miracles and the, you know, the teaching and stuff, I wonder if they lay awake at night sometimes, just remembering. Wouldn't you? If you'd seen that, wouldn't you be thinking, whoa. I wonder if they process the fact that the law and the prophets are gone and now it's Jesus and we're not going backward. This is it. This is the plan. I wonder if they tried to figure it out. I wonder if there were moments when they kind of whispered or had like a secret transfiguration hand gesture or something so that between the three of them they could go, you know, you know, right? I don't know. But what I do know is that after Jesus rose from the dead... They were then able to have a perspective on the transfiguration that is absolutely amazing. Let me put it to you this way. They got to see Jesus as he really is. Not veiled in flesh, right? Not fully human, fully God, but less obvious God. Like, they got to see the fully God very visible, right? And they saw the, and they experienced the love of the Father enveloping him. And they also realized later that some months later, Jesus went to another mountain. And on this other mountain, he was enveloped not in the glory of God's love, but in the darkness of being forsaken by God. And he was willing to go through the cross in order to, what? To allow us to have access to what they'd had on that mountain. 
He, he put that to one side. That was the plan of God, to lay aside his majesty so that the glory of his character could shine through as he died on the cross, paying the price for every one of our sins so that we could be enveloped forever in the glorious love of the Trinity. You see, they didn't get that yet. Every time he talked about death and resurrection, they scratched their heads and started to argue, as we'll see next week. But after the fact, after the fact, they had to put it together. Hey, the Jesus we saw on that mountain there is the same Jesus we saw die on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Why would he do that? And it made sense gradually that that was God's plan. That was what Moses and Elijah had been talking to Jesus about. That was why Jesus had come. That's why Jesus said, you cannot have the Christ without the cross. Because that was the center of everything that he was coming to do. So they come down from the mountain. The the, the one thing I want us to see about that experience on the mountain is that Jesus really is massively important. Okay, I don't know how to phrase that big enough, but but let's just take that truth, yeah? That Jesus really is absolutely the center of everything. So that's the one thing I want us to see there. Now we come down from the mountain and they kind of had that experience that maybe we have when we come home from... um, from being out, some of us. Let's say you've been out at work, which, you know, work is not technically the right term for what some of us do, because we then come home to the person who's not been at work, who has been working, right? And we come home, maybe in our, on our journey home, we listen to worship music, you know, have a little moment with Jesus. Maybe we even have instrumental worship music, because that's extra, it's special. And we, we come home, and we're all serene, and we're all settled, and then the front door opens, and woo, tidal wave of real life, right? He bit me. She said, he did what? You know, bang, bang, bang. It's like the house is a mess. The, you know, your wife is distressed. Whatever. You know, you know what that feels like when you kind of step out of a mountaintop experience and you step into the real world? Hopefully not quite as bad as this. Hopefully no demon possession. But for these disciples, they came down from the mountain and it just hits. It's chaos. There's people arguing, there's people criticizing, there's people confused, the disciples are scratching their heads, there's this man who's desperate, there's this boy rolling around foaming at the mouth. I mean, it's absolute chaos. It's a whole lot like normal life, isn't it? And we're not, we're not going to go through that in detail, but I want us to just jump right to the point where the action happens. Because I want us to see two things now on this incident. We saw one thing up on the mountain, Jesus is hugely important. Two things in this moment This man comes to Jesus and he says, you know, this is going on, this is my son. If you can, show compassion and, you know, you can heal him. And Jesus says, if you can. To the one who believes, you know, it's going to happen. And it's interesting, and I, I love this, that this is so real. This is so, like, me. I don't know about you, maybe you've got your faith all sorted. Maybe you're like a steroid-injected faith kind of person. And you just kind of, you know, every time you come to Jesus, you know, you're going to take the world. But some of us don't do that. Some of us come to Jesus with flimsy faith. Lord, I I don't even know if, but, uh, you know. And our faith is kind of flimsy. It's sort of soggy cereal, papier-mâché type of faith. You know, the sort of broken in bits kind of faith. And, and we bring it to Jesus and we go, uh-huh, if you can. I love the fact that Jesus doesn't say to him, that's pathetic, if you can. 
Off you go. Go home and do some faith exercises. Right? Do some one-arm faith push-ups. Polish your faith. Get it all bright and shiny. Then bring it back to me and then we can talk. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus takes that flimsy, weak faith and he honors it. It's really important that we get that. That if we think that we're going to get stuff, if we're going to experience things because our faith is so powerful and our faith is so strong and our faith is so polished, what happens is we start to trust in our faith. We start to think that God owes us, that somehow we've navigated the complexity and check this out. The reality is we can come to Jesus in our weakest moments when we're absolutely at the end of our rope, end of our tether, end of our wits, end of everything. And we can come to Jesus and we can say, I don't know what to do. I mean, imagine what that man had gone through. No matter what he tried, it had failed. No matter how hard he tried, his son would just get thrown into the fire and into the water and all. I mean, terrifying experience and incredibly draining. And he came to Jesus with this incredibly flimsy faith. Jesus accepted that. I'm so thankful, aren't you? That Jesus can take us at our weakest. When our faith amounts to less than a mustard seed. It's just, oh, Lord. But the issue is not the size of our faith. It's that our faith is in him. And you may be really at the end of everything. Or end of all your resources. And you may be you know, smiling because it's Sunday. But on the inside you're not smiling. You're, you're crying out in desperation. Thinking it's all messed up. It's all gone. But if you come to Jesus with that. Whatever the situation is. Whatever the pain. Whatever you know, has been kind of churned up within you over the past weeks or whatever. If you come to Jesus with just the flimsiest little faith. And say Lord I... I'm just pushing it in your direction. He'll take that. He'll honor that. I reckon the guy was probably slightly panicked. When Jesus delivers his son and the spirit leaves and the boy just collapses like a corpse. I mean, you just imagine, can't you? His mind going, oh. I thought I'd seen it all. Now he's dead. I even made a mistake bringing him today. I mean, what a disaster. I don't know what the man was thinking, but everyone else, it says most of them, said, huh, he's dead. Like, that's, that's gone wrong. He's killed him. But this is the other thing I want us to think about. It's not, a, it's not an overt thing in the text, but I wonder if most of them thought he was dead implies something that is good for us to think about. There were three of them there that I don't think thought he was dead. Just stood there, Peter, James, and John. They, they were there, and when, when the man said, if you can, oh, he can. And when Jesus delivered the boy and he collapsed on the floor and everyone goes, "Ah, he's dead, I would imagine they probably went, probably not. And if he is, doesn't matter. Watch this. Don't don't say too much, don't say too much. Do you know what I mean? I I know that they kind of blow it pretty quickly and we're going to see that next week. So it's not like they were superheroes of the faith. But I would imagine that right after the mountain, they probably had a little bit more faith than normal, don't you think? If you can, we just saw his glory. (laughs) He's dead. Go on, Jesus. Solve it. Deal with it. I mean, they they were in a position to kind of look on this with different eyes because of what they'd just seen on the mountain. 
And that, that kind of contrast of the flimsy weakness of the man as he comes to Jesus just desperate with, with kind of half-baked faith and the contrast with Peter, James and John who just seen the transfigured Christ, probably fairly bold still at this point. That contrast is, is kind of huge, but that's the range that we live in, isn't it? There are moments where we have real kind of faith and there are a lot of moments where we go, oh, I can't even see it in my hand, but I'm giving it to you, Lord. That's the range that we live in. And the comfort of that is that when our faith is flimsy and we've got so little to offer, Jesus accepts that. He's cool with that. He doesn't rebuke it. He doesn't send us away. He's ready to embrace you in whatever state you're in. Just lean in his direction. At the same time, with no pressure... This is not a kind of subtle little guilt trip. Nothing like that at all. But hey, isn't it encouraging that it's possible to have more confidence in Christ? Isn't it great that that actually we can face circumstances and we can say, Lord, I know you're in charge. And I know you can handle this. And I don't know how you're going to do it, but I'm trusting you. And we can have a little bit more of that post-mountaintop experience kind of confidence. Why? Because the reality is what they'd seen on the mountain. The reality, whether it's visible or not, is that Jesus is the Lord. That Jesus is in charge. That Jesus is the the focus and the goal and the end of all of human history and all of God's plans. It's all him. And that's true whether we're on a mountaintop or whether we're in the, the chaos of what was going on in the valley. It's true when you come home from work and you get hit with, you know, overpowering evil. It's true when you, you pick up the phone and, and something is said that just makes your heart stop within your chest. Whatever's going on in life, no matter how tough it is, and not just the crises, but even the kind of the grind of life where you just get so frustrated with yourself. I've done it again. I'm still struggling. I'm really in a bad place. In all of those moments, in every situation, Jesus is still the same Jesus that was on that mountain. He's still the the center of everything. He still is who he claimed to be. And so I wonder, without any guilt and any pressure, I wonder if actually the transfiguration is more important for us than we realize. First of all, it happened just to Peter, James, and John. Even the other disciples didn't get that experience. But it happened for a purpose. And I think the reason Jesus did that was not just for their sake so that they could kind of, you know, be bolstered and kind of confident or something. I I think it was for their sake so that they could then pass it on to us, which is what we have here in our hands. It's the written record of eyewitnesses and ear witnesses, the apostles, the followers of Jesus who saw and experienced what he did. Jesus wanted us to have the confidence that comes from the transfiguration. And as I think about that, it strikes me that there's something going on on that mountain that is in addition to what happened in chapter 8. In chapter 8, you remember, who do the people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? You're the Christ. Okay, technically, that's the correct answer. That's good knowledge. (coughs) But... The correct answer of chapter 8 also needed the experience of chapter 9. 
And if you've grown up in the church, I know some of you haven't, and, and there is both good and bad to that, but if you've grown up in the church, it's probably true that you've grown up in a church that leans one of two directions. Either you've grown up in a church where they're very strong on knowledge, where they know the facts, they know the truth, they know the theology, they can kind of fill in the forms, they can answer the questions, good on Bible quizzes, you know, really strong on truth, but maybe weak on experience. Or maybe you've grown up in a church that's full of experience, but a whole lot of it is not really connected to the truth. That seems to be what the options are in church world. Truth with little experience or lots of experience with, sadly, little truth. The New Testament tells us that we need both. We need both. We need to know the truth of who Jesus is. We need to know the truth of God's plan, God's purposes, the reality that is true whether you experience it or not day by day. It's there. We need to have that knowledge but God also wants us to have the experience of that confidence that Jesus is in charge. That experience of the love of the Trinity that is so glorious that if you experience it, it can transform your life. And that's what the disciples were getting. They were getting yep, knowledge gradually coming through and the most stunning experience to add to it. And those two things together allow you to walk into the valleys of chaos and confusion and have maybe faith that's just a little bit stronger than the flimsy faith. It's fine if that's all you've got, but that's not where God wants us to stay. He wants us to experience as well as to know the reality of who Jesus is. How do we get that? I just want to share three quick thoughts about that and then we'll finish. So we've seen the, the one thing on the mountain is you know, the significance of Jesus. The two things we saw down in the valley were the flimsy faith, but also the confident faith. Now three things about, okay, how do we get that kind of more confident faith? It's kind of like a three, two, one, only it's a one, two, three. It's funny. But, so three things. Number one, to have that kind of experience of who Jesus is and confidence that comes from it. Number one, you have to be a Christian. It's not available apart from being in God's family. And so maybe you've been coming to church for years and you kind of know the facts, but you know deep down that you've never actually trusted Christ. You've never said, Lord, I need you to forgive my sins. I need you to, to do for me what I cannot do for myself. I need you to bring me into your family. Uh, here I am. I'm a sinner. I'm desperate. Lord, I don't even know what to say, but I'm yours. However the words came out... If you've not done that, if you've never trusted in him, you're still on the outside looking in. And it's no good trying to chase some kind of experience if you're not in the family. And so that's number one. It's absolutely vital to experience a confident faith in Christ. You have to be in the family of Christ. You have to have Christ as your saviour. And so if, if that's kind of where you're at, please talk to me or Andy or someone else afterwards. We'd love to talk that through more. That's really foundationally critical. But what about once you've done that? What about for those of us that would say, yep, I'm a Christian. I, I, I remember trusting Christ. I, you know, I believe I'm a follower. I know, yep. I'm, but I still don't have very confident faith. 
I still don't think I can really say I experience a lot of what you're talking about. Well, number two, Bible. This is how God speaks to us. This is the the written record of the eyewitnesses who were on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is the written record inspired by God to make sure they wrote down exactly what we need to have to hear from God. We need to we need not just read it. We need to be saturated with this. We need to, to go after what's in here as if this is the most precious food there is because that's what it is. This is how we're going to know. This is how we're going to get those, that, that level of knowledge of who Jesus is, the plan of God, and so on. All the clarity that can come has to come through this. There's no other way to access that truth, that reality. And that's not the end of the story. In some churches, that would be, but those tend to be the churches that are high on truth, low on experience. So what's the experience part? Well... With this open and this in our hearts and this in our lives, then I would say number three, we need to have a conversation with God and say to him, Lord, it seems from what Peter said that it's not enough just to know the truth, but also you want me to have kind of the confidence that comes from experiencing your love. I'd love a mount of transfiguration. Big fan of that idea, Lord. But if there's some other way that you want me to experience that, I just want that. I want more of you. I want to experience more of your love for me. And I don't know what that means. I don't know what it looks like. But Lord, can we explore that? Can that be a thing between us? Because your word does say that the love of God is poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. It says that in Romans, Lord, you remember. I want that. It talks in here about having assurance and having confidence. And, uh, and that's, that's what I want, Lord. And so have that conversation with him, with your Bible open, hearing from him, talk to him, and then walk forwards in life saying, Lord, I'm looking for you. I want to, I want to experience more of being in union with Christ, of having this relationship with you by the Spirit. Uh, and I, it could be all sorts of things. Number three could include coming to church on Sunday. Not just for the teaching, but also for the corporate worship. Because it's not true every week, but there are moments, aren't there? Sometimes a certain song, sometimes a certain moment where you just go, whoa, that's powerful. That's important. We need that. Sometimes it's the corporate worship stirring our heart that gives us the confidence going into the challenges of Monday to say, no, I know who's on the throne just singing about it. I was just feeling it yesterday. And that feeling, it matters. It could be worship music in the car. It could be you singing in the shower. And that may be a blessing for you and not for anyone else. But God knows it's between you and him, right? It could be that spending time with certain people really stirs your faith and your confidence. It could be that going for you know, a walk in nature and just talking to God. I loved it last week on the retreat. Just going out to that overview point and, and just talking to God there. It was, it was wonderful. You know, it could be any number of things, but the point I'm making is not that you've kind of got to have the same mountaintop experience as anyone else, but I want to encourage you to go after God, to seek him, to pursue him, and to let that be something that is very personal, even when it comes in a corporate setting. Because it's those mountaintop moments that can re-fire our faith so that we're not always the person with the flimsy faith. 
Sometimes we can be the person who knows. Watch this. Not to be arrogant, not to be overconfident, not to be in any sense full of ourselves, but just to be so overwhelmed by the reality of who Jesus is and of God's love for him and for you. Just to be so gripped by the certainty that Jesus went to a mountain and was enveloped in darkness so that we could be enveloped in the glorious love of God. That kind of certainty that he's the center of everything so that as we go through the challenges of life, not always, but at least sometimes, we can say, Lord, I know you've got this. And I'm confident, not because I've got faith in my faith, but because I have experience as well as knowledge of who you are. That's the kind of church I want to be part of, don't you? With people that are not full of themselves or full of their faith or, or, or totally bereft of faith. I want to be in a community of people who are responding to who Jesus is and who are captivated by who Jesus is and who have some level of experience, ongoing, increasing experience that doesn't make them full of themselves but just makes them more full of Jesus. That's, that's a privilege to be part of that. And that's what we've been invited into.